good to see all of you here today. We almost had a very interesting sermon opening because I saw Joel starting to walk off with my sermon notes. And <laughs> Jim Garrett may be able to preach without notes, but sorry, I can't. And so anyway, uh, I was thinking about starting with asking for some volunteers, but I think it'll be more fun if I get some draftees instead. So how about uh, Emma and Andrew? You guys come on up here. Come on. Everybody know Emma and Andrew Thorpe, huh? It was, it, it was, it's a lot of fun because I knew Emma would just blush and she would come up here. And so we want, I want you guys to come on over here. And you're going to help us illustrate this morning's sermon. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. He said, oh, no. I said, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Now, be honest. Can you see anything? can see red. Okay, well, that's good. Your eyesight's still working. Okay. Emma, you too, you too can be blindfolded and not be able to see anything. I'll try to do this without pulling your hair too too much. Not succeeding here. I still want to make sure you can not see anything. Okay. How's that? Okay. Now, here's your task. All right. Go with me here. Go with me here. Come on, come on, come on. Okay. Okay. All right. Now, Emma, I want you to lead Andrew to the other side of the stage. Okay. You, 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 might, you, you might want to hang on to him. Okay. Okay. Now, before you go, I want all of you to help him out. Tell him where, you know, no, 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 don't go there. No, no, you're going to fall off the stage. No, no, you're going to fall into baptismal. Huh? Okay, and just to, for safety's sake, we'll have Dave come up here too on the edge and make sure that you don't fall off stage because the last thing we want is an emergency room visit right at the beginning of the sermon. Okay? All right, so Emma, you're leading Andrew, right? You're the big sister. You want to make sure he's safe, right? Okay, go. Go ahead. Emma, you're supposed to be leading him. What's wrong with this picture? You're leading him. It looks like Andrew's leading you. Come on. No, 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 no. You can't. No, you can't. Make sure. Okay. Still can't see. Okay. Come on. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Help him, help him out. Help him out. Oh, she heard Mama's voice. Andrew heard Mama's voice. You're doing great now. You're doing great. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're supposed to be following. Lead him to the other side of the stage. Come on. Help, help him out. Come on, help him out. Okay, about three more steps. Oh, don't fall off the edge there. No, okay, that's good. That's good. You, you made it. Nobody got hurt. No bruises, no cuts and scrapes, no broken bones. Okay, thank you. Let's hear it. Great sports, these Thorpe kids. Now, you notice how hard it was? Even when you were helping them, all these voices coming at them, huh? All these voices coming at them. Can we have the, uh, can we have the, the sermon PowerPoint up there? Okay. This is, ve- this is a very scriptural illustration here, folks. Thank you again. Just as Andrew 
was in danger of hurting himself physically because he was being led by his just as blind big sister, Emma, right? We are today in a time in our culture where we have a lot of spiritually blind people. And they are likely to lead us into a pit. And they can hurt us spiritually, just as there was the potential for danger for Andrew and actually for his sister to both be hurt physically if they fell off a stage or bumped into something or fell down, right? Of course, I would say that these spiritually blind people don't think of it that way. For many, probably even most, I would suspect that they believe that they're doing the right thing. But you know what? That doesn't make their spiritual eyesight any more clear. Good intentions aside, we remember the saying, this is not biblical, but it's still a good saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Good intentions aren't enough. Truth is truth. And the only way we can have clear spiritual eyesight is in Christ. So this morning we begin part one of a two-part message called In, Not Of. And we saw with this opening illustration how dangerous it can be when you have one blind person leading another blind person. And so today as we begin part one, the overarching theme of these messages is the biblical understanding that as believers we are to be in the world but not of it. And those precise words are not found in Scripture. But it is nevertheless a very clear theme in Scripture, and it's best outlined in Jesus' prayer for his disciples. We see this in John chapter 17. I'm going to begin reading with verse 14 this morning. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Again, this is Jesus praying to God the Father, and he's noting some important things in this prayer. First of all, Jesus was clear that he did not belong to the world. I am not of the world, is how he put it. He said that twice in the five verses that we just read. And because Jesus has bought us, his followers, with a price, and because we belong to him, and because we are in him, we who are his followers don't belong to the world either. That's simply a fact. That's simply a fact of our true status in Christ. We are not of the world. But Jesus also recognized the danger here as he prayed. Just because it's a fact doesn't mean we always live in or live up to that fact. He recognized that we have an enemy of our souls. He knew that this enemy, Satan, would seek to draw us away from Jesus and instead to be of the world, to be owned by the values of the world, to be shaped by the thinking of the world and not by the thinking that we read in the Word of God. Jesus also realized that because we are not of the world, when we do reflect that reality, when we live it out, when we live it out in word or in deed, the world will hate us. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons. 
And we'll hit just a few here this morning. The world hates us because we belong to the one who said, with all exclusivity, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said that about himself. When we insist on that exclusivity, the world hates us. What about tolerance? What about diversity? What about inclusiveness? The world hates us when we talk about and especially when we seek to live out the standards that God has given us in his word, especially when those standards conflict with the radical autonomy that the world demands. Personal choice, radical autonomy, seems to be the ultimate value today. And seeking to conform to the standards of the word rather than the world gets in the way of our autonomy. So they get mad at us when we point that out. Jesus also knew that the reason we were all in sin in the first place was because we did not trust God. We didn't trust his word to us. Satan's first temptation for Eve was what? Did God really say? Did God really say? Surely God could not have meant what he actually said. And then Satan challenged the truth of God's word to Adam and Eve, and he reinterpreted God's word to Adam and Eve. He said to Eve, you will not surely die. And Adam and Eve sinned, and they denied the truth of what God had said, and they consequently disobeyed. But God intervened. God intervened. He executed the plan he had in place before the world was formed, and he sent Jesus to pay the penalty that none of us could possibly pay so he could redeem us, to save us, to set us on a new path toward eternity in God's presence. That's the gospel. And after he accomplished this redemption by dying on the cross, by rising from the grave, that's when he prayed this prayer that we just read, or part of it, before he ascended back to his throne in heaven. He wasn't going to leave us alone. He was going to send his Holy Spirit, but he also knew that his followers down through the centuries would face the very same challenges that Adam and Eve faced. Would they trust God? Would they obey his word? Or would they just go with the status quo and be of the world? So Jesus prayed for his disciples, and by extension he prayed for us as his followers. He prayed that we would be protected from the evil one because he knows that the enemy is still active and still seeking to draw us away from God and away from what he's told us about who he is and how we are to live. He also prayed that we would be made holy, that we would be sanctified, he prayed. That means set apart for special use. That means changed. So we're supposed to be different from the world's sin, from the world's values, from the world's goals. The world should not shape us. We're not to be of the world Because in Christ, we are not of the world when we're in Christ. That's a fact. Jesus is praying that we'd live up to who we really are in him and not live down to what we are not anymore. But clearly, Jesus left us in the world for a reason. Verse 15 here says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. In other words, we are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. Next week, we'll take a closer look at what some of that means for us. And that's going to clearly connect to Joel's excellent message last week on our responsibility to fulfill the Great Commission. 
But this morning, part one of our two-part sermon, we're going to focus on the second half of this phrase, the idea that if we are not careful, though we're supposed to be in the world, we can also be of the world. And the danger that that poses when we are what we might call worldly. Another way to say of the world. So back to our opening demonstration. We were illustrating the blind, blind Emma leading blind Andrew, trying to get him across the stage. Jesus made a spiritual application to this danger of one blind person leading another when he said this, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Jesus was talking about teachers here. Specifically, in this case, he was talking about the Pharisees. But what do teachers do? In very significant ways, teachers are life guides. They guide us on the path of life in different ways. They show us the way in the context of what they're teaching. So we learn from teachers. They help us shape our thinking. They help us shape our worldview. In school, it might be science and math or art or history or origins. In church, it's the application of the Word of God to our lives, about what it means to be what it's like to live as redeemed followers of Christ. And this impacts everything, doesn't it? It impacts morality. It impacts behavior. It's about human nature. It's about character. But in our life in this world, our culture and our society teach us too. Don't we see that? Sometimes whether we realize it or not, we're learning from the environment that we live in. Our culture teaches us lessons about some of the same kinds of things that we're taught in church. Now, some of it's good. Much of it is not. The original language here for the word lead in Luke 6 means to show the way, literally or figuratively. And in our context this morning, we're talking about mentally and spiritually as well. In this passage in Luke 6, the context is actually the spiritually blind religious leaders of the days, that's again the Pharisees, those who came under the most criticism from Jesus. Jesus called them what? Blind guides. He called them blind guides. That's how he, that's how he uh, referred to the Pharisees. Jesus noted that the disciples should leave them. In other words, don't follow them. Don't give credence to what they say. Why is this? Why should they not listen? Why should they not follow them? Because they are blind, and they'll lead you into a pit. Because they can't see, or they at least will not acknowledge the spiritual truths that I, Jesus, will teach you. I will enable you to see these things. And because the attitudes of these blind guides are of the world. If you do follow them, Jesus says, you'll both end up falling into the pit. So this is clearly a warning, and it's pretty unequivocal. And just as it's applied to some of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, it can apply to some of the religious leaders of our day. Many churches, many denominations have either decided to approve of or are debating sin. In these dialogues, they're finding ways to affirm behavior that the church has for 2,000 years defined as sinful. Defined that way because it's the teaching of scripture that's because there are always some who ask did God really say did God really say 
There was even news this week about a political effort to make an undercover effort to change the views of a church because this church was severely backwards. That's a direct quote, severely backwards. And also, another direct quote, this church didn't understand Christian democracy. Folks, let me tell you something. Christianity is not a democracy. It's a benevolent dictatorship. That's, what, that's the faith we have. God's in charge. He's absolutely the boss. He gets to decide what's right and wrong, and thankfully, he has revealed what we need to know in his word. Of course, we do have the freedom to choose whether or not we believe his word or whether or not we follow him. We can absolutely reject it. We can. We do have that freedom. But we do not have the freedom to change what he's revealed to us in his word and make it fit what we want, whether the world thinks it's severely backward or not. And of course, none of this is happening in a vacuum. These churches aren't making these decisions just like all of a sudden. This has been coming for years. Many segments of the church have been co-opted by the enemy's constant question, did God really say? But the culture around us has already cast off all restraints too, doing what is right in their own eyes as we read in the Old Testament. And segments of the church are just kind of coming along for the ride. It also shouldn't be particularly surprising because to get to the point where some churches can declare something that has been clearly seen as sin for centuries not to be sin, you first have to undermine or reject the authority of the Word of God. And in many denominations, that was done years ago. So this is just the logical outcome of the path that they've been on. We could cite several examples, but it all starts with churches that give up the authority of Scripture. And this leads almost inevitably to churches that deny the divinity of Christ, that deny our need to be saved, or churches that deny that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through him. It all starts with the question, did God really say? Did God really say that? Is that really what he meant? I also believe this warning about the blind leading the blind can apply beyond those obviously quote-unquote religious leaders and anyone who is teaching in our culture, anyone who by example, by word, or by deed is teaching. Our educational system, the media in all its forms, our political system, sometimes our friends, family, neighbors, they're all teaching us in one way or another. They're all communicating their value to us one way or another. Now, TV and movies are an easy target in a sermon like this. David Frost once said this, television is an invention that permits you to be entertained in your living room by people you would not have in your home. But when we talk about the blind leading the blind, it's clear, no pun intended, that in a spiritual sense, thank you, Amy, the spiritual sense, the creators of many of the TV programs or movies that we watch the composers of much of the music we hear are spiritually blind. Add to that the reality that so many people in our culture seem to care very deeply what this TV or movie star or that singer thinks about everything from politics to morality to religion to heaven and hell. Our culture actually seems to seek out these blind guides, these blind leaders. Now, to the spiritually sighted, as we believers are supposed to be, 
This should be absolutely clear. But here's the problem. We're in the world, folks. And we're supposed to be. But because we're in the world, even though we're supposed to be, often we're like fish in a fish tank. We're swimming daily in our culture, not even thinking about the fact that we're immersed constantly in water. Fish doesn't think about, well, hey, I'm in water. That's just his environment. That's just where he is. It's possible that we're becoming more of the world than we might realize. Can we consider that possibility here this morning? There's a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary uh, named Carl Truman, and he wrote this. There are films rated PG-13 today which my grandparents would have considered porn. Is the standard of what is and is not obscene set by biblical truth or by cultural accommodation? Talk of Christians can watch anything as long as they do it critically is as daft, unbiblical, soft-headed, ill-thought-out, and confused as anything one is likely to come across. In fact, I have a suspicion that for some it might simply function as a rationalization for watching whatever they like and not having to feel guilty about it. I'm not here to make you feel guilty this morning. Back in my PR days, I was at a cable TV convention, and at one of the meetings that I was at there, it was actually a a group called Christians in Cable. And you might have thought, well, that's an oxymoron. But, uh, But it wasn't. I heard the producer of a program called Saved by the Bell. That was a 90s TV show. Some of you may remember that. This producer said that prior to becoming a Christian, he had never met a Christian. Never. One TV producer said, I gave up going to church at 17, and I don't know anyone who goes to church. One study showed that 92% of those who create movies and television seldom or ever attend religious services. And if we looked at what they believe about things the Bible clearly classifies as sin, we could understand why they would believe it. Why wouldn't they? What's more, another study showed that two out of three producers believe that TV entertainment should be a major force for social reform. You put that statistic together with that last sentence that I just said, and what do we have? We have the blind leading the blind on purpose, by design, intentionally. If the people who make our entertainment don't even know any believers, how can they teach us very much that's worth knowing related to that short and not complete list of things that we do indeed learn? We learn from many different sources, things about morality, things about behavior, things about human nature, things about character. Yet in many cases, Christians' consumption of these messages is absolutely no different than the rest of the world. Now let me be clear here, and I've said this before from this pulpit in different contexts. I still believe this to be true. I I spent 25 some odd years in the media. Um, I don't think that most of us need to throw out our TV and never see movies or never listen to popular music. In fact, I think we may sometimes miss opportunities if we completely eliminate these things from our lives. Now, if you've made the choice to completely eliminate those things from your life, great, that's fine. I'm not picking on that either. But I'm saying for most of us, that's not reality. That's not what we're going to go. And I think we're going to look a little bit more at that next week when we uh, begin to look at the idea of how we are in the world as we are supposed to be, but not of the world as we're talking about this week. However, 
That said, most Christians may need to or choose to restrict and be way more discerning about their consumption of popular media and exercise that kind of discernment about what we consume. I think we need to constantly, we need to constantly evaluate our vision, our spiritual vision. If we're not seeing life clearly through the only lens that counts, which is the lens of Scripture, clarified by the Holy Spirit, then we're just as foolish as a blind man going to another blind man and allowing him to lead us somewhere, anywhere. You've heard the phrase blind spots. You may be absolutely clear-sighted about most things, but you may have blind spots. We must learn to recognize those areas of our lives where we have trouble seeing. Yet we also have to be realistic and know that it's hard sometimes to be honest and realistic about ourselves. So better yet, have someone else help you evaluate your spiritual vision. Take a spiritual eye test and have somebody else administer it. Don't take it yourself. If your vision isn't clear, if you have a blind spot, don't go there. Don't put yourself into a place where you'll be like a blind person, likely to be led by others more blind than you. The blind spot may be related to a message from our culture. There was an author who writes of television, and surely I believe this applies to movies and music too. Think about this for a second. The choice of subject matter, the way the subject will be dealt with, what will be shown and what will be excluded, what will be treated as important and what will be ignored, these are decisions that the writer, director, and producer make. The program which results shows us life happening from their point of view. So do you want TV? Do you want movies? Anything in our culture, do you want that to be your seeing eye dog to help guide you through the hazards of life? What does a seeing eye dog do? A seeing eye dog helps a blind person navigate the hazards, the places where he can fall, the traffic that he could walk into, right? Helps keep that person safe. So in a spiritual sense, the equivalent of a seeing eye dog helps that person avoid the pit that Jesus talked about when the blind lead the blind. And of course, a dog can see. That's why they use these dogs. They can see. That's why they're such a help. They can be trained to see those very specific hazards, and that's why they can keep their master safe. But reflecting on this quote that I just read, we must remember when we're consuming popular culture that what we're seeing, the emotions we're feeling that are being generated by the things that we see are seen from the point of view of the creators of whatever we're seeing, whatever we're reading, whatever we're hearing. And if their point of view has no frame of reference to the things of God, if their point of view is not shaped by or even informed by Scripture, then they are spiritually blind. They're blind, but in their spiritual blindness, they can be leading us to emotions, to thoughts, maybe even to conclusions that can lead us into a pit. That would be like using an old seeing eye dog who couldn't see anymore. Now, before you dismiss this, these thoughts, this idea, as the ravings of a theologically conservative, overly protective, uptight preacher, let's, let's listen to this quote. 
You know that everything we're exposed to influences us. Those violent films influence us. The weaker your family is, the more they influence you. The problems with families and cities are catastrophic. But when you put violent programs before people who haven't had a lot of love in their lives, who are angry anyway, it's like pouring gasoline on the fire. Now, you might think that quote, which just happens to be about violence, but might just as well be about something like promiscuity or rebellion or porn or any of a dozen other ungodly behaviors regularly portrayed as positive in the media, it could have come from someone who's clearly classified as a social conservative or a theological conservative or both. But the person who said this also once said that pro-lifers are a bunch of bozos. And he's been quoted as saying that Christians are idiots. Anybody know who said it? Ted Turner. You know who Ted Turner is? He founded CNN. He founded TNT, TBS, and some other cable networks. He knows the influence of the things that consume us. And he understands and has used that influence to try to lead us. So surely, if a spiritually blind man like Ted Turner can see the influential power of the media that made him a wealthy man, we who are supposed to be able to see spiritually can see this too and recognize that in that power, the warning that Jesus gave us about the blind leading the blind into the pit, into worldliness, into being in that state of being of the world. We can see why this is a challenge. Charles Colson once had an interesting commentary on the radio where he told the story of a woman who was lobbying Congress because she had a daughter who had spinal muscular atrophy. And so she was lobbying Congress for increased research funding. One member of Congress told her afterward that she probably would have had more success and would have had more people listen to her if she had a celebrity endorser. It was pointed out that Hollywood stars are routinely called before congressional committees. You've seen that, haven't you? And why? Not because they're experts, but because they're stars. Everybody knows their name. Colson said this. He said, Americans are so dazzled by the big tube that anyone who's on it for any reason, the person could be a rogue or a thief, is rewarded. As someone once said, people are famous today for being famous, but celebrity for celebrity's sake is unhealthy. It's about the blind leading the blind. But in Christ, we are believers, and we can sing the song Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. We have to recognize that not only much of the world is blind, but that we have to nurture, we have to nurture our redeemed eyesight constantly. We can't just assume that because we're in Christ that our eyesight is protected. We have to nurture that. We have a remedy for our spiritual blindness. There's a cure, folks. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God is our cure. It's our protection for spiritual blindness. The Apostle John wrote to believers in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, does not come from the Father, but from the world. 
It is possible. It is possible, as Jesus did, to love sinners, to spend time with them, to even enter into their world, while also maintaining a commitment to the values of the kingdom of God and the continuing reality that as those who are in Christ, we are not of the world. That's where we're going to go in Scripture next Sunday. But think about this. Before we can be safe, before we can be fruitful, before we can be effective in the world, we must guard against being of the world. Think about how you're instructed to respond in an emergency on an airplane which loses cabin pressure. What does the flight attendant tell you? Put your own mask on first if you're traveling with small children. Why? That's because if you try to be heroic and you try to get your child's mask on first, you may pass out before you can get the mask on your child. Then you'll not only be able to not help your child, you're likely going to doom yourself as well. So first, we have to take an honest eye test. Do our actions, do our behaviors, do our attitudes reflect the world's values or do they reflect God's values? We're talking about healthy eyesight here, folks. Eating carrots won't give a nearsighted person 20-20 vision. But carrots are rich in beta-carotene, which the body converts to vitamin A. And vitamin A is a critical nutrient for maintaining proper eyesight. So what is our spiritual vitamin A for maintaining our spiritual eyesight in a healthy manner. It occurred to me that just as often as we grow tired of hearing doctors' advice on general overall health, you know, okay, you got to eat right, you got to exercise, got to get plenty of rest, right? Not too much ice cream, don't have steak and hamburgers every day. We get tired of that, son, don't we? We also grow weary and I think sometimes perhaps a little jaded about the standard, ongoing, heard it once, we're going to hear it again, prescription for our spiritual health. But at the risk of telling you something you've heard before and can thus casually dismiss, I noted that there are about 270 verses of Scripture dealing with spiritual blindness and the consequences of spiritual blindness. There are many more, which I didn't count in this list, related to the idea of light and darkness. And that relates too to being able to see clearly. You can't see in the dark. Right, Emma? Can't see in the dark. Or with a blindfold on. It's like being in the dark. In the light, we can see. And in the darkness, we can't see. So in that context, here is our healthy eyesight prescription. This verse, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Amen? God's word is a remedy to our darkness. It lights the way so we can see, and we can see clearly. Let's make sure, folks, that we are not of the world. Let's feed our minds, let's feed our spirits with things that help us see clearly, things that keep us from being worldly, things that allow us to be in the world but not of the world. Let's ponder that as we watch this.
Yeah. Sure.